0: So last week, let me get situated. Where's my coffee? As an embodied human being, I mean. Uh, First, Christ. Second, in my own weakness, coffee. So last week, we we took a look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we focused particularly on the theme of fidelity and suffering. This week, our theme is going to be fidelity and ministry. Although it shares with the theme of fidelity and suffering from chapter 1 for at least the first part. Um, and we'll be tackling Second Timothy chapter 2. Now, there's a lot here. And just like with First Timothy and Titus, um, am I in people's way? Like, are you at least able to see it? There's not much up there this week, so you'll, you'll be fine. But um, just like First Timothy and Titus, we could spend 13 weeks on each individual letter. So there's going to be gaps in what we, we, we pull out of the chapter to talk about. Uh, I lament the amount of stuff I had to leave out of the booklet. It is a booklet, whatever Nick has said at the beginning of this class. Um, I lament the amount of stuff that I had to leave out of that, let alone what I had to condense from that down to these classes because it is, these letters are rich in uh, theology and praxis and um, so much more, but Uh, we are limited by the time we have. And so as you read through chapter two on your own time, or maybe if you look uh, at that material, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands because I don't feel like going home depressed today. But if you look at that material, uh, you will see that it is far more in depth than this and could be even more in depth than than what um, is there. So the, 2 Timothy chapter 2 has a clean break in the middle of the text, uh, divides easily into two. The first half, verses 1 through 13, continues the encouragements to Timothy that began in 1 Timothy chapter 1, including the call to share in suffering. The second half, verses 14 through 26, shifts gears uh, a bit. And begins a section that will go all the way through the end until chapter 4, until final, uh, Paul's final words at the end of chapter 4. And it's going to dig back into the issue of the false teachers. Um, now, particularly today, in the next couple weeks, uh, maybe also, I'm, I'm not really going to pull out much of the false teacher stuff because we spent eight weeks looking at it. Things haven't changed much. Um, a lot of what was going on that spurred on First Timothy and Titus is is still going on in Ephesus at the time of Second Timothy. So I'm not going to be as detailed or dive into that as much um, as we did in the first eight weeks of class. By the way, this is week 10, uh, three more after this one. Our outline for today is be strengthened by God's grace. Metaphor for faithful ministry, an honorable ministry, and again, like last week, the fidelity of God. So, be strengthened by God's grace. Now, um, we're going to comment this by jumping back a little bit into Second Timothy, chapter one, verse fifteen, and then read through into. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If I end up saying 1 Timothy, just forgive me. I'm so used to it from the last however many months. 2 Timothy 1.15 through 2 Timothy 2.2 You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, including Vigilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. May the Lord grant that He will find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well how much the service, how much service He rendered in Ephesus. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, in what you have heard from me through many witnesses and trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. So in 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, St. Paul was focused on encouraging Timothy with fatherly affection and fatherly affirmation. He mentions that he desires to see Timothy one last time before he is martyred by Rome. And then beginning in verse 15, the apostle tells Timothy a little bit about his own situation. He has been abandoned while imprisoned by the Christians in the, the province of Asia. It's, it says the Christians of Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that sort of area. It is, in fact, where Ephesus is. So Ephesus is included in Asia when he says that. He has been abandoned by the Asian province, Christians from the Asian province. And this was because... Um, of their shame in Paul's imprisonment for the gospel. We can't really say much more than that, but it it is why Paul continues to come back to being ashamed again and get in this epistle and why I said, I don't think I, I, it's we're hard pressed as many commentators do to take second Timothy chapter one and say, because of this call to not be ashamed and to be, uh, and to and here in chapter 2 to continue to be strengthened by the grace of God that um, many commentators will say that Timothy therefore was timid and fearful and I don't, I don't think that's the case at all we know way too much about what Timothy was running around with Paul doing to, to think that um, really what's key here is Paul is alone in prison he's, he's been abandoned by people who are ashamed of him. And he doesn't want to see his son and the faith, Timothy, go through that as well. Of the Christians that were with Paul, St. Paul in Rome, Onesiphorus was alone, remained faithful to the apostle. And so that's the situation that Paul finds himself in. In prison. Knowing he's about to be martyred, completely abandoned, save for Anesophorus and, and uh, maybe some others that get mentioned at the end of the epistle. It's been a long time since I looked at the end of the epistle, so I can't remember who's there. But um, and in the midst of this, his desire for Timothy to come visit him comes up in stark relief. And yet. Also, in the midst of his loneliness and suffering in prison, where does his attention turn? To a son in the faith, Timothy. And in 2.1, he begins encouraging Timothy to follow the course of Onesiphorus rather than those who fled. And he says, you then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Take the path of force, anes- and, and not those who abandon me. How? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The encouragement to be strong... Um, up here. Yeah. The encouragement to be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus is, is really um, a way of saying, be continually strengthened by the grace of of God. You see, the, the apostle Paul, uh, in, in the scripture, has no place for the stoicism of the day. Stoicism taught that you must regulate your response and your emotions to what's going on around you by finding that strength in yourself and bootstrapping your way to making it through. There's a lot of good things that comes from Stoicism's focus on having a right, view, inv- right, a right view of what's happening to you in your life. And a right view of regulating your emotions so that you emote and respond properly to it. Where it fails is in the source of those things. Because it puts them in yourself. Paul... On the other hand, points us to God in Christ alone for those things. Be be strengthened, yes, but not by bootstrapping yourself to uh, finding the strength you need to face whatever it is that is coming your way. Find it in Christ. It is God alone who gives us the strength we need in such times. And God's grace is a never-emptying well, an oasis of everlasting water to which we are invited to come and draw eternal water from over and over again, day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment. And then St. Paul leads from that to something that probably seems a bit like a non sequitur so from this beautiful picture of, of drawing strength from the grace of God not just day by day but second by second he says also what you have heard from me through many witnesses entrust the faithful people who will be able to teach others well Now, this isn't new language for us. We've heard this all throughout the pastoral epistles, but what in the world does it have to do with what he just said? Well, it's not as non-sequitur as it may seem at first. Raising up leaders and entrusting them with the teaching of apostolic doctrine and practice is exactly what faithful ministry does. At the same time, here's the connection. St. Paul has just been abandoned by many ministry partners, friends. Those who he himself would also consider sons and brothers and daughters and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith. And not only has he just been abandoned, he's just expressed to Timothy how much he desires to see him one last time before he dies. St. Paul knows the difficult position he has just put Timothy in. For years at this point, he has been encouraging Timothy to engage in faithful ministry in Ephesus, to combat the false teaching of of the, the false doctrine of the false teachers, to be present to those who are hurting and in need in Ephesus, to have long nights and early mornings praying over the con- and for the congregation, meeting them where they're at in word and sacrament. And now he's, try- he's, he's trying to convince Timothy to pull away from that. Not forever, before a time. Just so Paul, as we saw in chapter 1, could have his joy completed in in the seeing of Timothy. So, yes, Timothy, be continually strengthened by the grace of God in the ministry that you have been called to, which was affirmed in your ordination through the laying on hands of not just the elders, but I, Paul, myself. (laughs) But also, in the midst of all your hurting for the people who are falling away from the faith under false teaching and for your hurting for all the people who are dying in their faith because of the the martyrdoms and the persecution of Rome. I need you to leave, and I need you to come to me one last time. So Timothy does need to be continually strengthened by God's grace to engage in his ministry at Ephesus, but he also needs to be strengthened by God's grace to trust in God's grace in Ephesus in his absence. He's not the hero there, nor do I think Timothy would assume that. But that doesn't make it any less difficult for faithful ministers who love the church that God has granted them sovereignly to, to shepherd when they have to leave them, when they have to stay a step away, even from the things that no one enjoys doing, like counseling, bereavement and being with the sick the things that ministers love to do and hate to do at the very same time because it gives them an opportunity to step into the lives of the people that God has put under their charge in ways that are difficult but sometimes we're called away from that and that too takes just as much trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God as it does to step into difficult ministry to begin with A faithful ministry has no place for celebrity culture or a cult of personality recognizing that our role is merely to join in with what God is already doing through the Holy Spirit. And if you're hearing me say capital M minister here because of of our focus on Timothy, that's true. But I also mean lowercase m. We are all ministers in the Church of Christ. So in the midst of this tension Paul does give a couple metaphors for faithful ministry. Um, What it means to suffer, what it looks like to suffer well in the midst of ministry. This is in verses 3 through 7. If we back up a bit. He, he calls Timothy to share in the, in suffering for the sake of the gospel. In that, in chapter 1, and here at the beginning of chapter 2, is what informs these, these metaphors, as we'll see. There are three that he gives. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Paul writes, after encouraging him to be strength, continually strengthened in the grace of God, And also to trust in God's sovereignty by entrusting the teaching to other faithful people so that he can leave and come to visit Paul. He reiterates his charge from chapter 1, share in suffering. Like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work, who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. And then what might be my favorite line? Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. <laughs> In each of these metaphors, St. Paul speaks of someone whose vocation requires a degree of suffering in order to attain some reward or pursue some goal. First, he points us to the example of a soldier. Share in suffering, Paul says like a good soldier of of Christ Jesus. And surprisingly, the apostle does not point to the suffering that we would expect him to point to in the life of a soldier. Harsh conditions, permanent injury, death. Rather, he says, no one in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. Okay, Paul. Remember, in a second... Remember that a first century soldier, and this is not to demean our contemporary soldiers by any means, but a first century soldier had no internet, no phones, no way of communicating back home. Many of them, most of them probably left behind their families without any recourse of understanding what's going on. Some of them, I'm sure, left behind newborns. Many of them probably left behind sick and dying family members without any way Of knowing what was going on in their everyday, ordinary lives, apart from messages coming to them by foot or by chariot. They were completely isolated and alone. They had to walk away from every important thing in their lives and live as if the people and places they most care about don't exist. Because any moment of distraction, any hesitation due to being concerned about everyday affairs could be the difference between their life and their death on the battlefield. Indeed, on the battlefield, a soldier only has one goal. To please his enlisting officer. We'll connect that in a minute. We're going to go through each of these Three quickly, and then kind of pull it together at the end of this section. But St. Paul's second metaphor is that of an athlete. Now, remember, a few weeks ago, I mentioned Allen Iverson's two thousand two post game interview and <laughs> the importance of practice. Uh, Paul's point here um, is not is is really. Uh, according to the rules, but I, I, I think that folds into what we were saying. As an athlete, you spend hours and hours in training, running the same drills over and over and over again, bringing your body to the brink of collapse. With that, you of course must be learning at all times the rules of your game, the ways in which your sport is to be done, because that in an ideal world, which is where metaphors often are, there is no cheating and being crowned. There's no cutting the corners. You beat your body into submission and to the point where it can barely go on and then you rest and then you do it again and you hope to be the one to finish first. So you, you destroy your body so that it comes back stronger, all for the purpose that you might be crowned in victory. Suffering looks a lot different than what we often think about, doesn't it? The third example he gives is of a farmer. And again, we must consider the first century farmer rather than the modern one. With the most rudimentary of technology, the first century farmer toils and sweats, struggles, and exerts himself over his crops. This is not in any way machine labor, but physical labor. In the hot sun, in the cold weather, in the rain, why? To bring about a harvest of crops, a yield from which the farmer gets to enjoy as the first fruits. The pleasure of the enlisting officer, the crown of victory, a participation in the harvest. These sound like the joys, the goals, and the motivations of Christian ministry, don't they? All ministry will be marked by suffering comes Comes with it but a ministry that rather than pleasing the enlisting officer seeks its own pleasure and glory a ministry that is not grounded in the eschatological hope of receiving the crown of righteousness that we receive in the promise of Christ and a ministry that has no participation in the harvest, not as individuals, but as the body of Christ, because they've neglected the mission of God, that kind of ministry is going to be crushed. If not in our lifetime, then at the end of it, at the judgment seat of Christ. On one hand, we have a ministry of fidelity as given by example in Paul and Timothy. In the love of pleasing God and bringing him glory, a trust that the promises of Christ will finally come true and be our amen at the end of time. In engagement with the mission of God of going out into the world. The other is the ministry of the false teachers who seek money in their own glory who cares not about the promised resolution of all things to God's glory and our goodness and beauty but rather would spend the time feasting now and enjoying the beauties of life as they see it and who cares not about the mission of God in the world because it doesn't make their name great With that, we come to the last half of the chapter and uh, our third of four, an honorable ministry. Uh, and this is all of 2 Timothy two fourteen through 26. But um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out three marks of what makes for an honorable ministry from this section. This section is filled with things that we could spend all day on and dive into, that I am leaving on the cutting floor. Um, so, apologies. But Second uh, Timothy two fourteen through twenty six, of which I will read part. Remind them of what I've written so far. I would probably include First Timothy in that as well. Remind them of what I've written so far and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good, literally uh, is of no benefit, but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid profane chatter, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. In a large house, there are utensils, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for special use, some for ordinary. All who cleanse themselves of the things I have mentioned will become special utensils, dedicated and useful to the owner of the house, ready for every good work. Shun youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone. An apt teacher, teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there's a whole lot here that we covered almost word for word from First Timothy and Titus. Which is good for me, because that means I can just pick out the, first, the, the three marks of an honorable ministry and kind of uh, point you backwards to other classes. So the three marks of an honorable ministry, it, or, uh, also known as one that is faithful, are these, rightly handling the word of truth, avoiding stupid controversies, and having a readiness for good works. I love that the Holy Spirit inspired the phrase stupid controversy so that I can use it. Well, he inspired the Greek behind it, but thank God for the translators. So, first, rightly handling the word of truth. And it's verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by Him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What does it mean to be a minister, capital M, lowercase m, approved by God? Here St. Paul gives us two parallel statements that serve to clarify, each interpreting the one before it. A minister approved by God is one who has no need to be ashamed. That is... What does it mean to have no need to be ashamed? That is, one who rightly handles the word of truth. Many interpreters explain the phrase rightly handling the word of truth by way of saying that the minister must must correctly exegete or interpret scripture. And that certainly makes sense, given that the pastorals focus on sound doctrine and teaching throughout. Yes, the minister should correctly interpret scripture so that they can proclaim it to you but that's where they stop that's where they stop and as we've seen over the last 10 weeks of class that saint paul's focus is not just sound doctrine but sound behavior not just believing the right things but living out the implication of those beliefs to rightly handle the word of truth is both in the pastoral epistles to interpret scripture's teaching correctly and to live lives that conform to that teaching If you remember from 1st Timothy and Titus, it was the opponent's false doctrine which tore apart the congregation. But at the same time, it was their conduct that led to a decaying reputation of the gospel, the church, and the ordained ministers with the unbelievers around their congregation. Thus, in 1st Timothy 3, one of the qualifications of being an ordained minister was having a good reputation with outsiders. So, what is the first mark of an honorable ministry? It's one in which the Holy Scripture is faithfully interpreted and proclaimed and lives are lived consistent with that teaching. I'm going to come back and clean that up a little bit, but I'm going to let let it hang free there for a bit. Second Avoid stupid controversies. A mark of an honorable ministry is by avoiding controversies and avoiding just anything that. Okay, the translators put it better than I can. Avoiding stupid controversies. Arguments that entrench oneself in a war of words that are just, it's never going to be one. It just goes on and on forever. Like the grinding, groaning sound in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, was it The Great Divorce? Where the anger just becomes a grumbling that at some point all, all else about that person's identity ceases to be and it's only the angry gr- grumbling continuing on as an echo of their former self forever that's uh it's not a theological statement that's that's also a metaphor but if you have questions about that you can come talk to me later that's what these controversies are doing they're just evolving to the point where it's all about angry grumbling continuing on forever And this, again, was a theme that popped up again and again in 1 Timothy and Titus. We see it here three times. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good, but only ruins those who are listening. Verses 16 and 17. Avoid profane chatter, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now... Let me pull back a bit. The the ungodly or er, of course I didn't put it up there. Uh, the profane chatter here is unsound doctrine. But if you remember, um, that's what spreads like in green, but along with it, part of part and parcel of what they were doing were using Um, the esoteric things that they were trying to teach in order to to spur arguments amongst the body of Christ and to split them and divide them. So while we understand ultimately that the profane chatter here is about like denying the resurrection, uh, which is in this chapter, and I'm uh, unfortunately skipping it, um, that kind of teaching spreads throughout the congregation, but along with it, the useless controversies and the arguing and this unceasingly debating. And so, that too spreads like gangrene. Finally, verses 23 through 26 have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant... That they will repent and come to know the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Uh, I'm just going to let the text speak for itself here. It does no good. There's no benefit. It only breeds, it only ruins those who listen in. It breeds quarrels. And by contrast, an honorable ministry is embodied by one who is not quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, patient, and corrects with graciousness and gentleness. Third mark of an honorable ministry, which I need to go through quickly, is the readiness to do good works, verses 20 and 21. Yeah, this is the longest text, so great. Great. Um, In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The main source for this Uh, metaphor that Paul uses of honorable and dishonorable vessels seems to be taken from the Old Testament's description of the utensils or the vessels that were sanctified meaning set apart or dedicated for use in the religious ceremonies uh, of the temple in in the Israelites worship of the temple now these just included things like basins and jars forks, knives just Normal everyday things that uh, became uh, something other than just regular everyday things, not because of the items themselves, but because they were set up. what they were set apart for. And that was to aid in the ministry. Now, St. Paul doesn't intend for us to push this metaphor too far. His purpose is that a ministry pursued in fidelity will reject both unsound doctrine and behaviors, right? That's the main theme that we've been, been going through. And so when he uses this metaphor of honorable use and dishonorable use, he has the false teachers purely in his sight. They are the dishonorable vessels in this passage. Timothy, and us by extension should pursue honorable ministries, ministries marked by fidelity, evidenced in uh, life lives consistent, consistently with the gospel and sound doctrine Now, go back to the first thing that I, I said about rightly handling the word of truth and how that involves both uh, right interpretation and right living. And then we come to this passage and we say, if any, and we read, if anyone cleanses themselves from what is dishonorable, have you... Any of you tried doing that lately? Like I know we're big on law and gospel here, so you, you hear this all the time. But not really, I'll let John Calvin ease the tension we're feeling. Beyond all controversy, we are cold, called to holiness. But the question about the calling and duty of Christians is totally different from the question about their, or our, power or ability to do so. We do not deny that it is demanded from believers that they purify themselves. Our collect of the day had that exact language purify ourselves. Calvin didn't say that, I added that. Let me get back to Calvin. Purify themselves. But elsewhere, the Lord declares that this is their duty while he promises by Ezekiel that he will send clean waters that we may be cleansed. Wherefore, we ought to supplicate the Lord to cleanse us instead of vainly trying our strength in this matter without his assistance. In a bit more concise way, we come to Paul, which I don't think I've ever used Paul and concise in concise in the same sentence. Titus 2, four, Christ gave himself for us that we, he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Christ alone. The work of Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That's how we were cleansed. And finally, again, as quickly as I can, the fidelity of God, because I, I don't want to miss this particular passage. This, this last passage uh, is actually jumping back up to verses 11 through 13. Uh, and it's one of the most beautiful and glorious promises that, that we will read in Holy Scripture. And it's God's promise. Um, of fidelity and this whole class has been marked by our fidelity to each other, to the gospel, to sound doctrine and to God's mission but uh, a couple times I've pulled back to Baal and hope to show you that it's underneath all of that and behind it and around it and on top of it is the fidelity of God to us and that brings us to this passage The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So in this first line, uh, if you have placed your faith in Christ, your old self has been drowned in the waters of baptism, God's promise to you is that you will live with him. There is a true newness of life that comes when we come to Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And honestly, this is not a question of whether or not we will endure. Because those who have died with him and have been raised to newness of life in the first line will endure. That is God's promise. We will persevere. Rather, he's saying, since we will endure, we will also reign with him. At the same time, we do need to admit that scripture tells us that there is a form of apostasy that will and can occur. And we see that in line three. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And what I want you to see here is that apostasy doesn't happen by accident. We don't stumble into falling away from faith. It is a conscious and concrete denial of Christ. In other words, if you're concerned that you've apostatized from the faith or fallen away in any ways, you haven't. You haven't. Because you wouldn't care. In fact, that would be the very thing that you wanted to do. There's no confusion in committing apostasy. It is the willful rejection of Christ the Savior and Son of God. How do I know this? Because of the fourth line, which is the most beautiful promise of Scripture. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, which means our faithlessness has to be something different than apostasy. And in this verse, we see St. Peter himself, who actually did deny Christ three times in a moment of weakness while his Lord was being tortured and crucified. We see the man who agonized over his demon-possessed son and the self-harm it, caused, causing him to cry out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We see the prodigal son taking the long journey back to his father, fearful of how he will be received. We see Mary and Martha grieving over the death of their brother, telling Jesus that he was too late and he needed to come sooner. We see ourselves and we see each other. I don't know what your faithfulness looks like for you. I'm not. You going to try and guess. I know some of the common ones that we face, like moments of doubt that God actually exists. Sometimes it's doubt, not that God exists, but that he loves someone like me. That is faithlessness. Or maybe you believe God exists, God loves you, but there's no way he could love someone like them, however you define them. That, too, is faithlessness. Maybe it's just struggling with God's goodness and beauty in the midst of suffering. There's a million different ways that we are faithless. But here's what I do know. The fidelity of God. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That doesn't just extend, as I said, to those of us who are part of God's family now. It extends to those who are not yet a part of God's family. He's faithful to them too. And St. Paul teaches in the verses preceding this, which I'll quote and then bring to an end, remember Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. A ministry marked by fidelity is a ministry that rests in the fidelity of God. The word of God is not changed, chained. May it freely roam about not only in our hearts, but in our neighborhoods, our city, and our world, wherever the Lord calls us to be his faithful ministers. Amen. Amen.